Heavenly Father, open the eyes of our hearts today as we study your word. Please give me words that are clear and bold and help us to see the reality of the spiritual battle we are a part of. And because the battle is at hand, please help us to see how we are to put on Christ so that we can stand to the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The task of fighting fires is inherently dangerous. In fact, it is often ranked in the top 10 most dangerous jobs in the U.S. One of the reasons for this is that fires can act unpredictably. Especially in the case of wildfires, a shift in the wind can change the direction and speed of a blaze instantaneously. A fire can travel as fast as 14 miles per hour, and although Hussein Bolt might be able to outrun it, the average human cannot. Of course, firefighters wear a lot of protective gear, but even when fully equipped, from helmet to boots, if they were to be caught in a blaze, it would not be enough to save them. It's for those moments of last resort, when a firefighter finds that there's no way they can outrun a fire, that he always has at his disposal something called a fire shelter. Really, it's just a flimsy metallic sleeping bag sort of thing that reflects the radiant heat of a fire, but it can make the difference between life and death. Each year, firefighters train on how to break open the capsule that holds the fire shelter, shake the metallic pouch open, and climb in with hands and feet, pinning the shelter down as they lie prone on the ground, all in under 24 seconds. As the fire moves over them, 60 mile per hour winds created by the fire try to rip the shelter from their grip. They have to keep their noses as close to the ground as possible in order to breathe the coolest air, which hopefully won't burn their airways. Firefighters can wildfires can reach temperatures exceeding 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. They create a sound like a freight train or jet engine bearing down on the trapped men. Embers pelt down like hail. Amazingly, firefighters can survive this hellish onslaught because of the fire shelter. Being a Christian is also fraught with danger, but worse than the unpredictable nature of a fire, the dangers Christians face are planned and calculated attacks by a wizened and deadly foe. In our passage today, Paul makes it clear that we are part of a spiritual battle with Satan and his minions, and we are not left to stand on our own strength, but rather we are equipped with spiritual armor, a sort of spiritual fire shelter. Paul has used the phrase, in Christ, ten times in Ephesians. And although it is not explicitly stated in our passage, the imagery of putting on the armor of God is one aspect of that rich and enigmatic phrase. For this protection is Christ himself. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 20, describes our Savior in the same terms as that of our spiritual armor. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so, because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. We will look at our passage today under two divisions, the adversary in verses 10 through 12, and the armor in verses 13 through 20. Here then is the first division, the adversary. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Just prior to this passage, Paul has been laying out a picture of what it means for us as beloved children to be imitators of God in our homes and workplaces. It all seems like a wonderful ideal, but when we actually set out to submit to our husbands, honor our father and mother, raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, or be sincere rather than people pleasers at our work, we realize it is very hard. As he has done earlier, Paul pulls back the curtain for us to see the spiritual reality. We, what we learn is that God's great adversary, the devil, wants nothing more than to undermine the unity that our Savior paid such a great cost to buy. Paul begins by calling Christians to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If we tried to stand on our own, we would fall. But as Paul has been so good to point out our great spiritual treasures from the first verses of this epistle, he again points us to this great resource for spiritual battle, our victorious Savior. He is our strength. How reassuring it is to fight a battle that has already ultimately been won. For at the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. A poor loser, Satan is still doing all he can to undermine the kingdom of God. But we can be confident in our valiant hero and his strength which is given to us. We are to be strong in the Lord by putting on the whole armor of God. Paul will give a detailed account of this armor in a moment, but it's important to note that we are instructed to wear it in its entirety, lest we, like Achilles, be struck in the place we are vulnerable. This is then how we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Have you ever wondered why caricatures of the devil are so popular? Satan loves it when he can convince us that he doesn't exist, because then we are not on guard. More than just a malignant force in the universe, the great rebellion against God began with one fallen angel, Satan, or the devil. The picture painted in the Bible of the devil is one of cunning, power, and ruthlessness. Yet we need to know that he is not omniscient nor omnipotent. And with the armor of God, we can stand against him. The battle is at hand. Therefore, we must put on Christ to stand. The Ephesians would have been more aware of the spiritual reality beyond this physical world than many of us post-enlightenment thinkers. Acts 19 tells how many of them had formerly been involved in the occult, and part of their putting off of the old man at conversion had been to burn all their books of magic. Acts 19 also records an incident with an exorcist in Ephesus who discovered that tangling with demons was not something to play around with. For the Ephesians, the supernatural was part of their view of the world. But just, just because we don't see it as blatantly 
doesn't mean it isn't at work in our world. We need to train our eyes to see things through this lens of spiritual reality. Scholars differ on whether the phrase, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, refers to our own sinful nature that has been put off, or wicked men and women in the world. But the point remains, the problem is actually in the spiritual realm. And because it is in these evil spiritual because it is these evil spiritual rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers ruling over this present evil age, we must do battle spiritually. True, this battle is described as being against the foes of evil in the heavenly places, but don't be deceived into thinking that doesn't mean it isn't in your living room and at your desk that the enemy will attack. Of course, Satan loves to knock down important people at great moments, but more often than not, he takes on guerrilla tactics of subtle compromise and familial disunity to undermine the true king's work of building the church. In fact, this is where Satan first attacked. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, the serpent gave to Eve, undermining Adam's role of authority, and convinced her of a lie. Pointed dagger fingers of blame divided the first husband and wife as the serpent slithered off into the dust. The Bible also tells us Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. Even with Eve, his lie was mostly true. Or, as Puritan William Bridge wrote, he will tell us a hundred true things in order to get us to listen to the 101st thing he says, the lie by which he traps us. This kind of adversary requires our discernment and alertness. Satan employs a variety of methods from belligerent confrontation to sweet deceit, ambush to intimidation, accusation to stroking of our pride, fear to comfort. He is wicked, destructive, loves the darkness of falsehood and sin, and is entirely without scruple. Even with this great arsenal of attack, we can be certain of our victory in Christ. In Romans 8, Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who, then, is the one who condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Hypothetical questions, though they may be, let me be clear. It is not Satan. He cannot. The Reformers coined the phrase, perseverance of the saints, by which they meant the biblical promise that those whom God has initially given faith, he will keep to the end. From election to glorification, it is all a work of his glorious love. 1 Peter 1.5 affirms, God's own, whom he has elected through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We do not keep ourselves. Therefore, it might be more apt to call it the perseverance of the saints. It is God's strength that is preserving us. No one, not even the devil, can snatch God's own from his strong hand. Yet, like many biblical truths, God's power of protection is held in tension with our call to stand firm. In the admonition to be strong in the Lord, we are the subject of the verb. And likewise, although the armor, of God, although the armor is God's, we need to actively put it on. This isn't pretty strappy sandaled theology, but rather practical tennis shoe theology. We need to know how to be strong because the battle is unceasing. Satan never gives up. 
It is being waged in your life and mine each moment. Because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. This brings us to our first truth. Believers will face spiritual attack. Where do you find your strength? When you experience spiritual attack, where is the first place you turn? How are you trying to stand firm on your own? How are you trying to stand on your own truth, your own righteousness, your own source of peace or faith in anything other than God? What would it look like to put on the full armor of God instead? Rather than immediately turning to your husband or a friend or Google, pray, open your Bible, look to your Savior and the armor he has for you. In fact, let's continue in our passage to see what Paul has to say about what the full armor of God includes. Our second division is the armor. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul probably drew upon two sources that he and his audience would have been familiar with when describing the armor of God. First, being imprisoned, he was literally chained to a soldier. And although this Roman soldier would not be fully armored since he was not in a combat situation, Paul and the Ephesians would have been well acquainted with the sight of a Roman soldier's military garb. Additionally, there are Old Testament passages that describe the Messiah as a valiant warrior. Psalm 24, verses 8 and 10. Who is this King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory. Does that sound familiar? Throughout Malachi, God has referred to himself as the Lord of hosts. The word hosts is a reference to the legions of angels at his disposal, as well as his army of believers on earth. Isaiah also highlights Jesus as the divine warrior. Chapter 11, verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And again in Isaiah 59, verse 17, He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Our armor has been proven sure by our victorious Savior. Therefore, we can have confidence that we too can stand against Satan. Because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. Something our English translations miss is that the verbs Paul uses are frequently in the second person plural. If only a Texan were translating, it could accurately be translated. Therefore, y'all take up the whole armor of God that y'all may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. 
This is a call for all of us to fight side by side. Do not be deceived into thinking that your faith, your obedience to God, your battling against temptation have implications only for yourself. Just as warriors in battle have each other's back, so too we help protect each other as we fight the good fight. Aren't you encouraged to pursue holiness when you see your sister sacrificing to do what God calls her to do? Don't you learn how to wield the sword of Scripture as you hear your brothers and sisters pray the word of God? Like a shield wall where each soldier's shield overlaps that of the one next to him, creating an impenetrable barrier, together our faith creates a seamless wall of defense against the flaming darts of the devil. Most of you know I have five kids. Because they're still young, we all go together on outings. I try to find things that they will all enjoy, but sometimes one of them won't be appreciative of what I've chosen. Isn't it amazing how one complaining child can ruin what is supposed to be a fun experience for the whole group? Satan knows this, and as he is determined to divide God's people, he knows it only takes one to destroy fellowship. What is the evil day in verse 13? Although we are always at war, there are times of intensified conflict. Throughout history, Christ's bride, corporately and individually, has experienced certain times of focused assault. Am I the only one who's wondered if they would be able to stand firm like the martyrs who have died for their faith throughout the history of the church? I pray that our hearts will be prepared for the evil day, whatever it may look like. Because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. The first way in which we put on Christ is to fasten on the belt of truth. The belt gave core strength to the soldier and allowed him to pull up his tunic and tuck it into his belt so that he could move unimpeded. Truth does the same thing for us. Certainly, we are more free when we are sincere and have nothing to hide. We are, after all, children of light. But moreover, it is the truth the revelation of God that we are to put on. Satan will try to lie to us, but Satan's lies prove false. Only when we have God's unchanging and uncompromising truth girding us will we be internally strengthened and able to stand. Next, we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is Christ's righteousness imparted to us. Whatever our past, we can stand unashamed. Should the devil try to accuse you, you are protected by the truth that you have been made new in true righteousness and holiness. Have you ever hesitated to serve God because you felt you weren't holy enough? Be careful. Satan loves to stop kingdom work by having us forget the extent of God's grace. Because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. Next, Paul turns his, turns his attention to our feet. How important it is to have good shoes when the ground is treacherous. Satan tries to trip us up with anything he can. Maybe it's our pride that gets in the way of forgiving someone. The gospel gives us a sure footing as it helps us see our undeserved forgiveness. This in turn humbles us. Or Satan may try to entangle us in doubt of God's goodness. But the gospel puts on grand display God's great love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. In these and many other ways, the good news of what Jesus has done plants our feet securely. 
For through this gospel, we are at peace, not only with God, but as Paul has shown us in Ephesians, reconciled with each other. Additionally, in all circumstances, we must take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Has there ever been an accusation or doubt that has come upon you seemingly out of nowhere? A sudden desire to disobey? Hatred flaming up in your heart? A rebellious spirit? A sinful desire? Fear where there should be faith? These are the flaming darts of the, of the devil. How can we survive this onslaught? Faith is in the one who is faithful. Ian Hamilton admonishes, it is imperative that we understand that when the Bible speaks about faith, it is not speaking about mere intellectual assent to certain propositions. Faith essentially is trust, self-abandoning trust in Jesus Christ. Faith involves submitting all you are to the Lordship of Christ. This is the faith that is the believer's shield against all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So sometimes faith may be patiently waiting, trusting God to do something in the future, or it may be obeying out of faith. In either case, it is all about the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. Paul has already addressed the importance of our mind and the role it plays in our spiritual life, and so it's no surprise that one of the elements of God's armor is specifically to protect our thoughts, the helmet of salvation. With the hymn writer Charity Bancroft, we affirm, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Satan wants us to focus on ourselves. But this is not healthy, it is not what we were created for, and like ingrown toenails, we only fester when we turn inwards. Our minds become distracted and discouraged and we are debilitated. So I ask, what are your thoughts consumed with? Hebrews 3.1 tells us to consider Jesus. Sisters, meditate on Jesus and his great work of salvation. Do whatever it takes to fill your mind with him, and there won't be room for Satan's attack. As I pondered this verse, I realized that I considered my, my skull a secure barrier. That is, I thought my thoughts were my own. But the truth is that Satan has ways to get into our head. Praise God, we have the Holy Spirit inside us, reminding us that we have been purchased at a price. We are no longer children of wrath, but rather beloved children. This also includes the sealed promise that our salvation will be completed. As we still struggle with remnants of our old sinfulness, Satan will try to discourage us. It is then that we must remember, because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. While the other elements of armor were primarily defensive, the last is offensive, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 describes the Word of God similarly as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We see Jesus wield this weapon in his great battle with Satan in the wilderness. Three times Satan tempted Jesus, and three times Jesus answered him with God's word. The verses Jesus had on hand could be described as obscure. 
How many verses do you have memorized from Deuteronomy? Further, Satan tried to tempt Jesus with scripture, but Jesus was so discerning that he saw through that as well and corrected Satan with scripture, finally causing Satan to depart. We need to know God's word. Ladies, we've been blessed with a gift of education far beyond that of most women throughout history. And yet our knowledge of God's word is often pathetic. Look at Mary's song of praise, which is a scripture-soaked prayer drawing upon approximately 40 Old Testament scriptures. She knew God's word, and it made her bold in her faith during a very challenging time. We likewise need to be adept at wielding this weapon in order to stand. When you read God's word, do you think about how you can use it to counter the devil's schemes in your life and strengthen those around you? Although there is great pleasure in reading God's word, it is not essentially a pleasure read. It is the weapon God has placed in our hands to fight, excuse me, to fight the good fight. Because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. Now Paul transitions into a call to prayer. Unless you think it unrelated, prayer as an act of reliance is how we put on the armor of God. Let's start with what it means to pray at all times. This is prayer full way of life. It is living before God in an attitude of dependence. It is looking to him first and foremost for direction, hope, wisdom, truth, and peace. Ian Hamilton writes, prayerlessness is practical atheism. Because the battle is at hand, we must prayerfully put on Christ to stand. What does it mean to pray in the spirit? Romans 8, 26 through 27 explain, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Further, Sinclair Ferguson explains, to pray in the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit as we pray. This means submitting, submitting our minds, thoughts, will, and desires to be influenced and mastered by God's word. We thus begin to think God's thoughts after him, develop instincts that are aligned with his will, and ask for those things that he has revealed please him and that he promises to do. In essence, prayer involves bringing God's promises back to him, in the context of all that he has told us about himself, his character, and his will. How blessed we are to have the Holy Spirit within us, aiding us in our prayer. Next, we're to pray in all prayer and supplication. The repetition is an indication of emphasis. We are to pray earnestly. Just as Jacob would not let go until God blessed him, we are to pray and not lose heart until we see God's answer. We are also to be alert in our prayer. Jesus warned his disciples that long, lonely night on the mountain to keep watch and watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to prayerfully be vigilant of the devil's schemes. And this is to be done with perseverance. Perseverance is a resolute determination to see something through to the end. Now, God doesn't need persuading to help his beloved children. But when we persevere in prayer, we prove that we believe, as Paul put it in chapter 3, 
that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Finally, we are to pray for all the saints. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul has told us that it is only together with all the saints that we know the surpassing love of Christ. He has shown us that we are one body, unified at great cost, blessed by each other's diverse giftings. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, um, we are instructed that if one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. And as we discussed earlier, we fight the spiritual battle side by side. For all these reasons and more, we are to pray for the church universal. Because the battle is at hand, we must pray for all to put on Christ so that we can all stand. Lest it remain theoretical, in verses 19 and 20, Paul then shows us what this kind of spiritually militant prayer looks like. He asks without hesitation that the Ephesians would also pray for him, that words would be given to him in opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which he was an ambassador in chains, that he would declare it boldly as he ought. He does not ask that his chains be removed. He does not ask that he would be free to travel. All these things would seemingly be in line with his calling to be an ambassador to the Gentiles. But Paul realized that the gospel is not imprisoned by chains or walls. Rather, as he admonished Timothy, he was ready to preach in season and out of season. And as Paul put on his spiritual armor through prayer, Satan's attacks could not thwart Paul's calling to be an ambassador. May we pray like this, that nothing would get in the way of our kingdom work of helping our husbands, raising our children, encouraging younger women in their faith, sharing the gospel, giving to those in need, etc. Satan will try to stop us, but our God's might is greater. Because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. This brings us to our second truth. Believers can stand against spiritual attack by putting on Christ. In what areas of your life do you see Satan attacking you? How can the armor of God protect you in these specific areas? What Bible verses do you need to memorize in order to put Satan at bay? What do you need to be praying for in relation to your current spiritual battle? Forty men facing death from exposure in the middle of a frozen lake had only to renounce their faith in order to come to the shore, be warmed, and save their lives. They prayed that God would help all forty to stand to the end. They sang songs to remind each other that Christ was their strength. Still, one man abandoned the other 39. A guard watching from the shore saw the witness of the 39 remaining and putting his faith in Christ, walked onto the lake. The prayer was answered. 40 faithful men stood to the end. Like firefighters, those 40 men had their protection at the ready so that they could stand against Satan's assault. May we also be prepared, knowing that in Christ we share in his might. Because the battle is at hand, we must put on Christ to stand. In conclusion, this last week, by God's providence, my 11-year-old wrote this poem for a poetry competition at school, mind you, having no idea of the topic of my lecture. It's called The Tragedy, the Hero, and the War by Job Kavanaugh. I will tell a tragedy of a man from long ago. He betrayed his greatest friend. From the garden he had to go. 
He made his own death and downfall, though why, I do not know. He brought war and tribulation, that man from long ago. But fear not, my friends, for victory is ours. We still have our hero, right now he lives among the stars. For we were dead, and he has brought us back to life. So then, O men, take up thy belt of truth. Put on thy breastplate of righteousness. The shoes on thy feet will be the peace of the gospel. Defend thyself using the shield of faith, for it will protect you from the flaming arrows of Satan. By all means, put on the helmet of salvation. Fight for the Lord with the sword of the Spirit, for he freed us. We must fight our enemy, for the Lord is on our side. His love could span an ocean a thousand miles wide. Our hero bought our freedom using his own blood, uh, and all he does is chide, for his love is like an ocean, and that is why he died. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great might. Lord of hosts, you have secured the ultimate victory over Satan and his rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers. We confess that we try to stand on our own might, but we cannot. We thank you for your truth, righteousness, gospel, salvation, faith, and word by which you have equipped us to stand against the devil. Please, Lord, help us put on Christ by prayer. May we stand together faithfully to the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.